You're listening to the Sleuth Podcast. Real private investigators here to help you find the truth when you need to know. Sharing sometimes shocking, sometimes heartwarming, and sometimes hilarious stories from the field. They keep it real. Interviews with experts bring you insights on how people leverage PIs in their lives and in their businesses. Licensed by the North Carolina Department of Public Safety. Here's your hosts, Jamie and Lindsay. All opinions expressed on this podcast do not constitute legal advice. Instead, all information, content, and materials available in this podcast are for general informational purposes only. The views expressed by participants are in their individual capacities only, not those of Blackman Detective Services. Listeners of this podcast should contact their attorneys to obtain advice with respect to any particular legal matter. Only your individual attorney can provide assurances that the information expressed in this podcast is applicable or appropriate to your particular situation. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to the Sleuth Podcast. I am your host, Jamie, and with me we have back Lindsay. I'm back. Lindsay. And we have a special guest today in the studio. We have investigator Melly Bissett. Hello. Good morning. Good to be here. Well, afternoon. How are you? I'm good. So are you excited to be here? Uh, sort of. Wow. I'm excited you're here. We have been talking about Mally since the beginning. We always have... Um, the, remember the little bullet points from Mally that we yes. used to do? Yeah. <laughs> this is he. This is the man that this created the bullet he's points. He's here. <laughs> Live and in person. Live yes. and in person. So he's also been a listener of the podcast since we started. And I always look forward to his critiques and, you know, things that we can do better and what he enjoyed and what he didn't about the show. And so I'm just glad that you're here today. Thank you. Lindsay. Hey. Where have you been? <laughs> I have been gone, and I'm back, and it feels really good. COVID life. Right. So the the stay-at-home thing that everybody is doing is the same thing I was doing. Y'all know the, the podcasting was happening from home. Just, as cool as that was, I don't have the attention span to podcast from home. Like it's My child's like going crazy in the background. I'm looking around at my messy room, thinking about things <laughs> that I need to clean, and... Well, you know, in front I didn't of a like window. how we sounded. At the end of the day, yeah, I was like, we just, just found like we're in a hole. No, we tried. Thank Zoom. I know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we, we, I probably could have tried a little bit harder to, you know, get a better mic or something, but I, I was holding on for the fact that We'd life will resume and we will come back. <laughs> when and now things we have, get back to normal. Have yeah. you heard that commercial? Did they get back to normal <laughs> or did we all like just collectively person, <laughs> stop though. caring? It's like, oh, it's still <laughs> bad, but whatever. <laughs> Oh, no, but I care. <laughs> I'm not playing around. I, like, I'm still like, in fact, my senses are a little bit heightened because, you know, there's people a lot of times around with no masks on and I'm afraid. Yeah. You just never know. Never. Never know. So coronavirus <laughs> is still here. Yay. What'd y'all do for the fourth? Anybody do anything fun for the fourth? I had a party. What'd you do? Duh. Where's Leanne? How is she? <laughs> oh, she's great. She is still three and <laughs> she's awesome. No, no complaints there. So the fourth is also my husband's birthday. He turned 36 this year and he had to work. So he didn't come home until later in the evening. He's on 12 hour shifts, but it was nice. So we had some friends over. I had my brother over. Little Leanne had some little friends to play with and we did the whole backyard barbecue party thing. So we had the grill going and I've got a really cool fountain out there now. I saw that. And that was cool. Working on my field. Yeah. The fountain is awesome. It's a whiskey barrel fountain and it's like a double thing with the it's a Mally project. He was probably like It's that. beautiful. I'm going to show you pictures. Yeah. <laughs> I love it a lot. I got corn growing in the yard now. I oh, didn't wow. plant it. It just started coming up. And, you know, when I stopped cutting things, I was like, what is, is this corn? How did that happen? 
I have that big field in my backyard and I've been trying to clear it out forever because I was going to do a garden and it turns out I have an invasive weed and it's this whole story. So if somebody um, has a plow, <laughs> because I, I've reached out to uh, several people from Craigslist and um, the only thing that I could use to fix my a yard mule. is a plow. Yeah, like an actual mule plow, but maybe electric without animals. <laughs> Mally's laughing. Mally, I a feel mule. like you probably <laughs> have a plow at your house that you want to bring. A mule plow. <laughs> you don't have one of those in your backyard. Uh, a cart and buggy. I just pull <laughs> it behind me. I'll just hook it up in my shoulders because we don't have a mule. You know, COVID's going bad when people are asking to borrow mules. <laughs> <laughs> tiller. You can rent a tiller. I've so. looked up a tiller. Yes, you can rent them at Home Depot and I can afford that. And I could probably get it done maybe in like two days, but it won't get rid of the weed that I need to get rid of. I think Ace Hardware is better. I think they have... Ace Hardware? No, I hate Ace Hardware. They're so expensive. Oh, you put a t- you, you put a, a weed killer on it. I know, but it's going to be a garden, like for food. Well, after a while, that weed killer is gone, and it will. you can just till, till it. Up the I know, but it, it's, it's like a quarter acre. How much weed killer do I need? Also, am I going to get <laughs> cancer from this? Well, you might. You might get See, coronavirus. <laughs> but you might get not. coronavirus. My corona <laughs> cancer garden. <laughs> there was some man on the news last night that was like, your neighbor next door might be dead in November due to coronavirus. I thought that was a little harsh, but could be realistic. Um, I would check to see if Lyme kills it because that's the cheapest way to do it. And you can't, hurt your, you can't hurt your lawn. You can't put down too much Lyme. Really? Yeah. Isn't that bad for you? Yeah. No, no. I mean, it's not great for you, but neither is poison. <laughs> I know. Yeah. I'm, I don't know. Lime, Lime sounds dangerous. Lime's good. Makes your grass green. It's not going to be grass. I need it all come up and be dirt. You need to go out and pick it. Pick it. I've okay. been picking it and it keeps coming back. What kind of, what kind of <laughs> weed is it? It's called dog bane. Dog what? Dog bane. It translates literally to dog killer. It's in the hemp family. It's also called Indian hemp. And its roots grow like seven to 10 <laughs> feet underground. You need to move. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, and it's coming up towards my house. Like, I'm out there picking it, like, every day, and I hit it with the weed eater, and I have a new lawnmower, and it's gorgeous, and I'm not taking it out there. Okay. So, anyways, that's my life. I live outside in my yard. Oh, yay. Well, I'm glad corn. you're back. I'm glad you're back. I'm glad I'm back. Glad to hear you on here. I missed you. I missed you. No. Oh, my friend. <laughs> All right, so I want to shout out to thank you to all the podcast listeners of the Juneteenth podcast. I've gotten a lot of positive comments from people who have decided to kind of change their mindset or just look at things a little bit different and be in support of this whole Black Lives Matter movement. Understanding that it is more important to learn to live in this country as united people and not self-destruct under political differences. We're all neighbors and we just need to love on each other and start at our local level. Can I tell you when I started listening to that, as soon as I realized that the second person you were talking about was Mr. Brown, that I was like, what? <laughs> you? <laughs> I believe when you told me about this episode, you called him by his first name. I didn't know this was the Mr. Brown. Well, you know, as, as the conversation kept going, I just kept calling him Mr. Brown. Like I, I've never called him Bob. So how would I ever weird. know that? I mean, I don't know. I just, my feelings were hurt. I was like, I wanted to meet him. <laughs> <laughs> he's he's like our I don't know our backstage advice giver so much that come on I don't know we'll, when we'll do I get to meet Mr. Brown <laughs> what he is didn't he like write some of our uh, disclaimers he did yeah yes thank you for I forgot about Cue that disclaimer no yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is the other advisor that's on the other end over here so I'm excited about today because today is going to be the true crime for our true crime people I was, 
always have wanted to have Mally on the show, right? And so I was trying to figure out, you know, what could we talk about? You know, what are we, what could be Mally's thing? I wanted to talk about guns at one point, and then I I changed directions because that was like a lot of research that I wasn't ready for. I didn't know. I don't know nothing about guns. <laughs> I got to do a lot of research before I get ready to. You need to learn talk about guns, but. You have one. I have one. And I shot a shotgun the other weekend. Two shotguns, a 20-gauge and a 12-gauge and all kinds of, like, automatics and all kinds of stuff. Go you. That was exciting. You need to become as comfortable with them as you are your car. Absolutely. You need to know it. I know my car. Me and Fizzy get along well. Hmm? Yes. Fizzy? Yes, my car's name. Oh. Yeah. (laughs) Fizzy Bubbles? Yes. He kind (laughs) of looks like Fizzy. I don't know where I got the Fizzies from, but. Kind of like Dallas Cowboys, silverish blue. I don't know. It reminded me of Bubbles. Oh, that's cute. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, so back to Mally. What did you do? Why are you here? What? How did you start off in this PI Who field? Is Mally Who is Mally Bissett? Who is Mally? I grew up locally. Two years in the military. Came back. Uh, went to North Carolina Wesleyan College. Got a Bachelor of Science in Criminology. I went with the Raleigh Police Department. Okay. Uh, what did you do in the Raleigh Police Department? Which What were your areas? I worked general investigation for a long time. My last 13 years was in the homicide unit. Ooh. We strictly homicides. Were uh, you just like a regular detective or did you do... Allison yep. always says you do evidence. Like were you... In my mind, I felt like you were like an evidence collector, but then I didn't think that after... No, no, I was a regular investigator. Uh, there was five investigators and one supervisor in the homicide unit. We all did the same thing, but we had specialized duties within that unit. And mine was interviewing people just like everybody else, doing neighborhood canvases and whatnot. But when we had a crime, you called the City County Bureau of Identification. Mm-hmm or the SBI if you need them, and they come and they process the crime scene and they collect evidence. Question. Sorry, can I stop you? What's the difference between SBI and CCBI? CCBI, City County Bureau of Identification. Mm. They process crime scenes, photographs, collect evidence, or whatever they need to do. Uh, SBI can do the same thing, Mm -hmm. but they also have scientists working at the SBI, and they analyze evidence, and they testify as experts. Gotcha. Okay. And Hmm. so CCBI collects evidence. The homicide investigators need to know what has been collected. So part of my duties was to maintain a liaison with CCBI Uh, when I was, when the, time was right during the investigation i would get with ccbi sit down and and go over the evidence with them what have you got what can we do with it do we have prints have you checked them on against other fingerprints so you made sure that you guys had all of the information that you needed from the ccbi so that the detectives could continue to so we would know what they had collected and Sometimes we would have those collectors come to the, our office, and we would all sit down and talk about what has been collected. Once you know what you have collected, you know what you need to look for to compare 
to what you have. And who you need to look for, right? Exactly. Right. So uh, with the, correct me if I'm wrong, but are you saying that with the police department as an investigator, you are dealing with more of the human element? You know, who are you looking for? The interviewing, the finding of them, the identifying them, looking for them, interviewing them, whatever. And then CCBI was more just evidence and photographing and crime scene processing evidence collection and preservation. So if they have fingerprints from a crime scene, then we know we need to, to, when we talk to people, consider do we need their fingerprints. If they've found blood evidence and and we concentrate on someone as a suspect, do we need their blood or DNA? And if we do, then we are thinking about when and how we get it. Right. And so if you need to go find like a, you know, if the person smokes cigarettes or something and, you know, you were out in the area and you found a cigarette, but on the, on the, at, on the as a part of the crime scene and they pick that up and test it and then they can match it to the person. But if you as the investigator doesn't know he smokes or something like that, you would not know to ask for a saliva sample. Exactly. So we had a homicide once, a uh, convenience store. Mm-hmm. You don't just concentrate on the inside. Behind the store was 12, 15 beer cans. And they could have been there 30 minutes or 30 years. Right. But we collected those beer cans. And we got a fingerprint off one of those beer cans. And and they ran it through a system called APHIS. APHIS, yeah. You're familiar with that? Yeah. And we got a hit on it. And it was with a local guy. So we went and picked him up and immediately... He confessed to being one of the three people who robbed and killed the person at that store. Wow. So you don't just collect evidence. Uh, that you immediately see. At your immediate crime scene. Right. You, you collect everything around it that you can. I, I got to see CCBI doing their job once or twice when I was doing security. We Following a shooting, I don't know if it was a homicide, at least a shooting, at a shopping center, CCBI came out, and I guess one of the bullets had hit the exterior wall of one of the stores in this strip mall. And she was a young girl, and she was my age. I remember just watching her in awe. I was like, your job is so cool. You're awesome. <laughs> and she just walked up to it, and everybody's just kind of standing. Who's she doing? What is she looking at? You know, And nobody would have seen this, but she found a bullet hole in the wall, and it was like seven feet up. And she looked around, and across the street was a, a Lowe's hardware store, my favorite store ever. So she got in her car and she drove over to Lowe's and she came back with a ladder and a saw. And without permission from anybody who owned the building, this woman sawed a like eight by eight square hole (laughs) out of the exterior of this building and took it with her. And she just, you know, didn't really say much to anybody. There were two rally cops standing around just kind of make sure that nobody was going to, you know, interfere with what she was doing. But that was fascinating. I was like, you don't have to ask. You can just She's like, no. She's like, I'm going to take this bullet hole with me. <laughs> it was well, when there's- a, a good crime scene technician, a well-trained technician, will see things that nobody else sees. Always. Right. And almost always, even if it's like the situation you were talking about at, at a storefront somewhere, the police officers draw a search warrant. Basic search warrant. And yeah, you, she probably already had that before she showed oh, up. Oh, yeah. She oh, did. Yeah. But me working security there, I'm like, so I, I obviously have nothing to do with this. I'm just going to stand back and observe. My, my point was when, when they are issued a search warrant, you don't. most people do not realize the authority 
Yeah. That, that search warrant has. Yeah. You yeah. Do, that do property, you want. that property, in effect, becomes theirs. Right. They, they need to tell people what they're doing and, and do the best that they can to get along with everybody. But ultimately, if they have a search warrant, they free free for all. Blackman Detective Services. When did you get there? How long have you been with the company? March of ninety five. And Allison had already opened, and he begged you to come and help him. He had been in operation three <laughs> three three years. He and his daughter, I think, formed the company. And when I went there in in ninety three is when he opened. Okay. And when I went there in ninety five, he had fifteen investigators, and he needed someone to case manage. Or more manage, manage and organize. Right uh, now, and and, I, and that was part of what I did well at the police department, and and he knew that we worked together a little bit, and uh, of course Allison had said before he couldn't organize two apples, so he needed, <laughs> and he'll tell you that today I'm sure, but he'll he he needed some some help because things were booming. Right, it, it was it right. was booming. Okay. So what were our investigators like then? Were they all retired police or? Yeah, what did an investigator look like in 93? Right. Young, male, female, white, black, Spanish, no police experience. Okay. Oh. But they had, uh, they had a good head on their shoulders that they could look at something and see past it. Right. Their eyes didn't stop. When I look at you, I see what's behind you. So right. they could, they were good. Cool. And you could call them anytime, day or night. Things have changed a little bit with our investigators. You call somebody to go out 1, 2, 3 a.m., you get a little whine. From, <laughs> Why are you looking at me from, while you talk about that? <laughs> you get a little whine sometimes. But our investigators, I mean, they, they were Charged, supercharged. They were ready to go. Where are I, they now? I think investigating back then, too, was a little bit easier. It was easier and different. Not everybody expected to have a tail on them like we do now. Right. It wasn't so popular, I would assume, at that time to have well, an investigator. Why, the domestic? The pop, uh, PI business was popular. It was, it was heavy. It was right. moving. But people didn't talk about it. They didn't think about it. You know, now if two people are seeing somebody else, they're like, "Girl, you need to get a PI." First thing, <laughs> first thing they talk about is is a PI watching me. Now, back twenty years ago, thirty years ago, yeah, whatever it was, they didn't. But there was one watching. <laughs> the weight count was full of always watching, always watching. Don't ever think somebody's not watching. Well, that's what. So I called Allison and asked him. You know, what, why he had you, why he picked you what to be say? his right-hand man. <laughs> he said all good things. He said your attention to detail was far surpassed, and he remembered that from the police days, and he wanted that to be a part of what he was doing. He said that you were great with files and case management and dealing with people and delegating. So I thought that was awesome. That's awesome. That's good. Yeah. So um, I learned from Mally a lot of times how to deal with clients correctly. <laughs> you, you, know, I, I, you, know, you know what I'm trying to say. Yeah, yeah. You start with the basic, uh, the basics, 
And depending on that person's actions or, or reactions or, or lack of anything, you have to have to uh, adapt to how you interact with that person. Right. Sometimes you can laugh and cut up and makes them feel better. Right. Sometimes you don't smile. Right. And that's the best way to go, too. Yeah. <laughs> There's some people like that. You have some clients, they don't want you to be too friendly because then they feel like you're playing or you're not going to do what you need to be doing. That's you know, true. You just yeah. have to fill them out each one so I thought so as I was googling for Mally I popped up on this case state versus Taylor I googled it well I was already in google so it just popped up and I read it and it was a a case from the innocence commission and I figured this could be kind of our story time today that we talk about it's kind of a, a murder that happened in Raleigh that Mally worked on and Allison and one of our favorites, Bill Hensley. CCBI agent. Yeah. yeah. So I was like, felt like I was, I know these people. So I was excited to see that. So I figured I would just pretty much kind of start from the beginning of the case, give the people a little background on what happened, and we'll just kind of discuss what y'all think. I'm excited. Go. Go. Okay. Excited. So, okay, September 26, 1991, RPD discovered a body of, well, I'm going to call her our victim because I don't want to snatch out her name right now. Is that okay? Why? I mean, you already said the case. Well, and it was cold. It was cold that morning. Very cold. Very cold. Very cold. What? Okay, September 20th. Yeah, I bet. So, what am I saying her name or no? No, don't say her name. Okay. All right. The victim was lying on the pavement in a cul-de-sac at the end of Blunt Street. If you're from Raleigh, everybody knows where Blunt Street is. Yes, sir. Warehouse district with a few scattered homes. But no reason to be there. Right. Go ahead. In fact, um, I read in here that that's pretty much kind of where the officers would go and kind of like meet up and just hang out a little bit before they took off to wherever they were going. Because there was ample room for them to turn around and, like you said, not residential. Yeah, sometimes supervisors, you hold roll call and you give assignments to officers and they hit the street because there's, you know, Need you to be out there. There are people out there that want to come in. Right. And you go take their place. And and the supervisors have papers, subpoenas, warrants, lots of things to give their officers. So they take it to them in a little packet of some sort, and they meet them somewhere. And when you work the southeast side, that's a convenient location to meet people in that particular area. So that was y'all's beat? Allison always talks about his beat. <laughs> Everybody's assigned a beat. A beat is an area that you work. It's usually, uh, well, downtown. It's like six blocks. Okay. North, south, east, and west, and you know where you are. Okay. Yeah, and for anybody that's listening that's not from North Carolina or familiar with this area, we are talking about Raleigh, which is the capital, right. and downtown. So Blunt or Blount Street, however you want to say it, is I never, I it's could never Blount. figure it out. It's not, I don't know. Some people call it Blount Street. People that ain't from here. Blunt. Blount yeah. Street. You don't pronounce it's spelled the like U. Blount. Anyways, <laughs> it's it's like in the heart of downtown. It's right downtown. Are you in a civil matter where you need to locate and serve court documents to someone? You might want to have divorce papers served to a wayward spouse or locate someone who owes you money. The investigators at Blackman Detective Services have the resources and intelligence to track down debtors and others avoiding being served with subpoenas, orders, and civil complaints. When there's someone you just can't find on your own or that has a history of avoiding, hiring an experienced investigator can be the key to unlocking the next phase of your case. The 
the woman had been brutally murdered with both blunt force trauma and cutting trauma injuries into her head and neck. A vehicle belonging to our defendant was located approximately 150 yards away and out of view, stuck in the mud on a gravel and a dirt service road. So basically an officer came down there to do their morning things. And he saw this woman laying out in the cul-de-sac. There was another officer behind him. He stopped the officer and they both got out and started doing investigation and kind of checking out the scene and seeing what was happening. Were you on the scene at the beginning? When did you get, did you get on the scene? I don't believe so. Or were you yeah, just I, doing in? No, I came on a couple of hours later. Okay. What did you see when you got there, except for the fact that it was cold? Tell me. I think I'm in one of those pictures that crime scene. Are you in one of the pictures? I believe so. Oh. Uh, crime scene pictures. I saw Hurdle. the victim. I saw CCBI. I saw multiple blue and white police cars. So what happened when you got there? Crime scene was being photographed, investigated. We called a fire truck with the... Boom, the extension arm, what, what do you call that thing? Ladder. Ladder with a bucket on it, and, and we put a CCBI agent in that bucket, and he went way up and took pictures, area pictures of, of uh, oh, I want that job. the crime scene. <laughs> <laughs> Take and, me up there. <laughs> so if you, if you pull up this case, you can see the – and I was wondering, where did they get that angle from? And I would have never thought of a – Fire truck. Uh, they, they can use drones now, but we didn't. Right, so you had to get creative. We had a drone back there. Uh, so, so I was there for a while, and there was not much else to do. There's no witnesses. There's no people's homes right. close by to talk to. So then you, you go. So do. then it says Mr. Uh, Taylor came to retrieve his vehicle while the police were processing the scene. The defendant ultimately told the police that night before that he and a friend had been smoking crack in the cul-de-sac. They had driven up the service road and their vehicle became stuck in the mud. As they walked away, they saw a body in the road. Both of the men both maintained that they had not seen the body prior to walking out of the cul-de-sac and had no contact with the victim that night. So the police used presumptive testing, and which reacted positively for small amounts of blood on the underside of the defendant's vehicle. What appeared to be tire impressions leading from the body to the vehicle also reacted positively for presumptive tests of blood. And the police were not able to locate any evidence of blood or the victim's fingerprints, trace evidence, victim's hair or clothing fibers in the truck. They could not find any evidence of blood fibers from the victim's clothes or from either of the defendants. Uh, police dog indicated the victim's scent was on the outside of the defendant's vehicle. This victim was known to trade sex for drugs, and some witnesses claimed they had seen her get in the vehicle with these two guys the night before or that the night of. And the witnesses were inconsistent in details about the times where they saw the vehicle and what the, the victim was wearing. So I can imagine that that became a problem, trying to bring that to court, well, them not being... Well, it was. What you do first, you, you identify the victim, and then you identify the victim's friends, family, right. who saw that person last and where they saw her and who she was interac interacting with. When's the last time you saw me, Jamie? Yesterday. Do you know what I was wearing? Yes. Do you? Yeah. Well, you were wearing that. You had on a T-shirt and shorts, but you didn't have on the jean shorts. You had on those khaki. Well, 
shorts that you wear. I saw you in jeans one time and it freaked me out. I was like, oh my God, are you, what is today? <laughs> Normal clothes. I, yeah. love, I love jeans. Uh, I was wearing camo shorts. Okay. Who Those- are you? <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's not working in the office every day. It's nice when we don't have to go there every day. Every day for 30 years I wore a suit. I know. And a tie. When I got out of that, I dressed down. In and, a, and in a I, polo shirt and khakis. Oh, no. Oh, no. I, I did. And then when I left office setting and working from home and went to shorts and no shoes and a T-shirt. Yeah. He's always got socks It's hot outside. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So I, I kind of want to paint a picture of the crime scene, though. Um, so, so can I say one thing? Yes. My, my point was uh, these people couldn't say the witnesses that saw right. them together mm-hmm. allegedly couldn't tell what she was wearing, couldn't say what she was wearing and whatnot. But, uh, it's hard to... I don't remember what my wife was wearing when I left home an hour ago. <laughs> it was not important. Things, A lot of things are not important. What was your husband wearing last time you saw him, Lindsay? Uh, so it, it's not important. <laughs> he was dressed. But, but, uh, well, I, I don't know. Oh, well, maybe not. <laughs> it, does, it doesn't Hopefully have to he was. be. No, he was wearing clothes. I think it was pajama pants. But I understand. Like, unless it's your child or, you know, right. somebody that you had to put their clothes together for them, you know, mm-hmm. then I maybe would know what they were wearing, but not normally, right? And especially if I'm so, if I'm on drugs or I'm living that lifestyle where, you know. I don't feel like what she was wearing would have been crucial to identifying whether or not she was the person that was seen in the same white Nissan Pathfinder with the same with, you know, because wasn't she a black lady and they were two white guys like. No, one one white, one black. OK. Yeah. But but you're right. What she's wearing. Uh, you when, wouldn't have seen anything except for the top of her shoulders anyways, unless she was in the bed of the truck. And then things are really weird. And that's not unusual. <laughs> that's not what you look for. You You see her, you know, her and her history and what she might be doing right so then you notice what she's doing it with right this particular automobile and these particular two people you you'll remember that you don't care what she was wearing so that's not unusual so this truck I, that's one of the pieces that i picked up on mm-hmm. that you just read over was where the tire tracks were in relation to the body and the vehicle so the vehicle is facing away from the victim who's dead on the ground right the vehicle is facing away and pointing towards like a, a wooded area or that side road area. And they said that it was wet and swampy and marshy back there. Right. And it had rained at some point the night before. So the, the tire tracks were probably pretty crucial to placing the, the victim's body with the vehicle. Well, the blood under on the undercarriage was yeah placed her with them. But I think they had issues with the tire tracks because whenever they tried to it was in some. sand, yeah. It didn't do well. The it is as you come down Blunt Street, you go into a cul-de-sac. Mm-hmm. There's no there's no exit from that cul-de-sac. Right. There's a dirt path that leads further on away, and that's where the truck was found. Is that what they're tr- calling the side road? It was more yes. like a path. Just a path. It, the, the truck is trying to find an escape route. Right, and it gets stuck in the mud into oblivion, away from the road. It apparently hadn't been there before because it didn't know there was an escape route. Oh yes, there's a photo of this. Okay, so this is obviously clearly a cul-de-sac. You'd have to jump up over the curb with your vehicle to get onto this. Right, and as they drove towards that marshy area, the truck got stuck. Mm -hmm. 
right? So, but the thing to me, if you have tire tracks leading from the woman's body and you have her blood underneath the car and the dog could smell the scent of her around the outside of the car, the only thing they didn't have was anything inside the vehicle. True. How many seats were inside of the vehicle? I believe two, but then they said something about the back seats were sitting up as if, you know, to make room for the back, you know, so that somebody could pro- possibly get in the oh, back. Oh, was it a Pathfinder? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. So it's three rows of seats, front, second, and third seats. What? So what do you mean? I just didn't realize it was that big. Yeah, Nissan Inside Pathfinder. Yeah, and then Yeah, and then they probably have that third seat in the back that's optional. Yeah. So they made it appear as if there were only two seats. That were still up and everything okay. else was laying down. Okay. Okay. So then we get to, I guess I'll just go straight to the woman's injuries. They're kind of graphic. They're brutal. Well, first off, the woman was disrobed and many, many lacerations, defensive wounds, and... So she was still wearing her boots. It said that she was wearing boots and that her shorts and her panties had been pulled down to her ankles. Right. Right. And then her shirt, she was wearing a red bra, which people described in the testimony quite a bit. And her shirt was pulled up like up underneath her neck. So her shirt was above her shoulders. She's still wearing a bra, no panties, no shorts. They're just around her ankles. Right. So we get to, I'm gonna, I'll just read the medical report because that's a little bit more professional, I guess, than yeah. the way that it's described other ways. So blunt traumatic injury on the right side of her head, two lacerations, depressed skull fracture, a right per- parietal bone. How do I say that? Lacerations and hemorrhage of the right temporal lobe of the brain, complex traumatic injuries of the neck, crushed injury of thyroid cartilage of the upper neck, Fracture body of the sixth cervical vertebrae, epidural hemorrhage, lower cervical spine cord, lacerations, puncture wounds, contusions, and abrasions of the skin of upper chest and shoulders, lacerations with focal sharp force component, fracture with hemorrhage, left third and fourth anterior ribs, contusions to the right breast, enlarged firm hilar lymph nodes consistent with sarcoidosis. Why do they always talk about sarcoidosis? And the sarcoidosis is like, it's kind of, it's a disease where it's something to do with the blood. Are we Googling, Joe? Mm-hmm. Thank you. Tell me. <laughs> it's a disease involving abnormal collections of inflammatory cells that form lumps, granulomas. It's in the lungs. Yeah. So it's like not, it's like nodules sometimes. And sometimes it comes, it's so much that it's like in the people's skin and they just have like these lumps all over them. But it's, it's sarcoidosis. It's, well, I guess if you're a medical examiner and you're examining a brutal, you know, murder like that, you might as well. I mean, they're, they're going to notate everything anyways. Mm-hmm. You know? Right. But it's almost like they say there was no sarcoidosis. Like if, you know, as a part of their list of things to check off like sarcoidosis yes or no you know i don't know i always see it on people's medical on the medical examiner report i don't know what a gruesome job also kind of a cool job i'm trying to picture being a medical examiner like i'm a very empathetic person i always try to feel like or can't help it i just feel how other people feel and i couldn't imagine being like "Hmm, look at this sarcoidosis (laughs) (laughs) 
that's well. That's I mean, at I, that at that point, you know, the person is a specimen, kind of, and you just have to do your job. Yeah. You know. Okay, so basically, here's what I want to know: when they when they came in for interviews, right? You guys found found that of course you found them because they were standing out there, and he told you where the other guy was, and I'm assuming y'all went and picked him up, right? Okay, yep. so y'all get back to the to the station, and everybody's doing their interviews. Oh, you didn't even talk about that though. What did you? That he came to get his truck. Well, yeah, I said he showed up on the scene while okay. they were out there processing. I mean, how they weren't even like fully like at this point <laughs> when 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 the victims or the. Suspect. When the suspect showed up, it was still just two Raleigh officers there. So this man just walked up there like willy nilly, like, oops, oops, excuse me, sir. Let me go get my <laughs> truck out of the mud over the curb over there. Over the dead body. Right. That that probably the officers hadn't even seen at that point. They're probably just, folk, you know, at the, they described that they tapped the victim with their shoe and she had already begun to harden. So, I mean, they're they're like in the, the very beginning and the suspect comes up and wants to get his truck. Yeah. So, obviously, right, I feel like the RPD would be like, oh, well. That's a clue. Yeah. <laughs> Call that a break. There's your sign. Yeah. <laughs> and, this, and this guy was on drugs, right? He used crack cocaine at the time. Yes. With, right? Yeah. And um, I'm assuming that his buddy did the same, you know. Was he still high? Flocked together? Not, not very, no. But you would have to He'd be a little doing bit it all to night. come back. I would think so. This was in the morning. Yeah, but I know. But, I mean, I would think that he would still have a little bit of something right. in him. I mean, how would you just all of a sudden decide to go back to your car? Like, you, maybe they I think, think he was still high. He, was just <laughs> he, he had probably most of it out of his system overnight. Yeah. I didn't realize it happened so quickly. I thought that that would. No, that's why they have to get high all the time. Because it doesn't last long. Doesn't last. Oh. Okay, so these guys come, you guys do all your evidence, everybody's collected everything, blood samples, everything is in. The guys come in for, well, excuse me, that's in the process while they come in for the interviews, right? Tell me how the interview process went with these guys or what you remember of it. I don't remember. I know I was in there. I don't remember who was the lead investigator. I don't believe it was me. I had other Mm -mm. duties going on. Most often they have, or they had. Howard was your lead investigator. John Howard. Mm -hmm. They have two investigators in there. Of course, I doubt they had not been arrested at the time they came to the police department. They were advised of their rights and asked about why they were there, why their vehicle was there where they'd been during the night. That's how that went. And so he made a statement about, I guess it's somebody cut her, cut her throat. Right. And the detectives had not told him anything about the crime scene or prior to that. He had said, well, there was no body there when our truck drove up there. And right. They said they didn't even know that she was there. Right. Even though you must've ran over her. Because didn't they get tire impressions yes. from her blood mm-hmm. in the cul-de-sac? But he he knew a lot of things that he shouldn't have known if he had just walked up, right? And so because of all those inconsistencies in his witness statements, he was found guilty, right? And he was sentenced to jail. Uh, sentenced to jail was he sentenced for life at first? I would assume so. Probably, but I don't I don't remember. Yeah, I don't know. So this guy sits in jail for 17 years. He speaks with the Innocence Commission, and they decide to take a look at his case. 
and he feels as if he's had ineffective counsel at some point during the trial. And, and that's that, why it was retried, right? Because of the claim of ineffective counsel. It, it wasn't actually retried. Okay. The Innocence Commission interviews people. They interviewed me, me and, and a lot of the people that were involved. So in the what did they ask you? What were they trying to get from you? What was the feel of that kind of conversation? Because, <laughs> I mean, because at this point, they're like basically saying that you guys didn't do your job right or something. Or what happened? That's a good question. Are I mean, they accusatory they, when they approach you? Yeah, like or? what happened? <laughs> I don't know how to answer that except to piss off somebody. Oh, but, that's fine. But <laughs> I they, mean, the truth. I mean, how did they? They, they go over your statement again. Mm-hmm. And, and very nice people, cordial. And they go over your statement. And, and I don't remember. Maybe they record it. Sometimes they ask additional questions. Sometimes they just go right down the transcript. Are they uh, asking you to produce any like reporting or paperwork or anything like that? No. They just want you to repeat kind of what you know about the case, your piece on it, and then... Yes. And then if they've got enough information or uh, documentation, evidence, or, or I, I don't know how much they have to have, what they have to have. Then it's presented to a three-judge panel who considers the information, and then that three-judge panel will determine if if they've got enough information to declare this person innocent or guilty and he stays in prison. Does the, what are they called, the Innocence Commission? Mm -hmm. Do they have a say-so in who the judges are? I don't think so. I wouldn't think so. They are just... uh, a body of people, some lay people, some attorneys that just reinvestigate what what uh, happened. That's kind of cool. So it says the testimony at the commission hearing revealed that a follow up test showed that no blood was on the vehicle. It supposedly was not ever passed on to the court. That's why I was trying to figure out what did they have that they felt like gave him, put him in a benefit of the doubt type of section, and it wasn't him. I, I don't know. But, you know, he also went to, while he was in jail, he supposedly told one of his jailmates, cellmates, that he was a part of the killing. And so, I mean, that's it's just wild. I mean, these things happen. I mean, eventually, after 17 years, they let him out of jail, and he's, you know, living a free life. And, you know, I guess... He's not on drugs anymore, and I guess, you know, he can just kind of <laughs> go off and be a normal person again. I don't know. I think uh. I'm, I definitely <laughs> I, have, I definitely see a lot of things that don't seem right, you know, but. So as far as, you know, with the topic of evidence collection, evidence handling, and the Innocence Commission, I totally get that part where, you know, you have a crime, clearly a homicide from the early 90s, what was it, 91, mm-hmm. right, when it happened. And then he was convicted in 93, but he was arrested basically, what, like, exactly, immediately. yeah, immediately, right? Mm-hmm. And so then he he made bail, and then he was free-ish for three years, and then he went back to jail for another 17. So then, now, what did it, it was, it's 2009 at this point, or? Mm-hmm. When they did this? Right. Yeah, when, uh, first case in 2008, that was unsuccessful. And then. So I went to the Innocence Commission website, and they started in 2006, and they've 
received 2,849 requests to consider their case, and it's ended up with 12 exonerations. So it's it's a very slim percentage of the people wow. end up getting turned over. Wow. But I mean, I... I can see that the need for that, you know, because in, in the 90s, your your evidence handling and just basically technology wise was going to be so different, you know, as yeah. far as DNA testing and things like that, as opposed to what we have now. So if if that evidence was effectively preserved from, you know, when it was collected until modern modern day, like it's way later, but I mean, mod- till now, then we could <laughs> probably reexamine that evidence and see was somebody, you know, falsely convicted of a crime that they didn't commit. I get that, but. I'm super judgy on this case because I only <laughs> I only got as far as the medical examiner's report. But when it comes to the timeline of events and how things were laid out, and it seems like they actually did have quite a lot of evidence, and that's listed also. I mean, they right. they had like we talked about they the only failed evidence that I read about. I'm not sure what they actually ended up finding that was failed evidence, but they they weren't able to properly to identify anybody based on the semen that was found in her underwear. Right. right? But I'm like, why would that be the determining factor? Yeah, but factor? You, you have you have all of his other you know factors, right. right? You have the lady's blood on the undercarriage of your car. Like, I'm sorry that my blood wasn't on your steering wheel, but <laughs> like, excuse me for bleeding on the undercarriage of your car. So well, I, I, I feel- she never got in the car. She was never in the car. That's why they couldn't find any evidence. Right, clearly they're innocent. Right, so you did, you know, everything had to have happened outside, right? And then they just took off. I feel like that's a lot of evidence, though. If you've got blood on the undercarriage of the car, they had, did they not have hair samples? They had, they described the medical examiner using, or not him, the the CCBI guys. Can you prove that it was this man? Can you prove it was this man? And is there something that's... Or are we now just proving it's the truck? Right. Right. You see, and that's kind of like when we're talking about, you know, when we're doing overnight surveillance, Mm -hmm. can I verify that that person was there all night long, you know, or was there a gap of time? Right. So it's it's like, or the GPS thing, right? I can say that you were in the car or the car was at the McDonald's, but were you the one actually driving? I mean, I can't put you in jail. Right. And say that, yes, that was you. You were the so one. So is that the what car. ended up happening with this? What's the insufficient evidence? I mean, I mean, the only thing I see is the no show that when they did the follow up test that there was no blood on the vehicle and it was never passed on to the court. So, you know, if you don't if you're not releasing all the information that you have, you start looking like. So this isn't a lack something. of physical evidence. No. It's the improper handling of evidence over the years. Well, and probably good attorneys on his side that were able to find loopholes. And, you know, I mean, that's how the court system works. Right. I mean, you got to have somebody that knows how to work it. They got they know how to find little areas where you can. I mean, and if you try to act, I mean, act as if you have not given the court all the information that they need to make the decision that they're supposed to be making. on You're going to they're going to get off. That happens all the time. Yeah. Yes. And if you're relying on. Witnesses from the jail, right? Who, who, someone, who are criminals? Who someone has confessed to, or and that's people. what led to his his uh, conviction, isn't it? He when he was in jail, it was his cellmate or another prisoner there who reached out to RPD and said, "Hey, my butt over here has confessed to a murder. Let me tell you about it." But you know what the court's going to do? I'm sorry, <laughs> you know what the court is going to do? They're going to tear him down because he's a criminal too, and you're right. just trying to, you know, lighten your sentence by snitching on somebody else. 
So, I mean, all of that comes into play. You're talking about this woman is a prostitute, so you already know they're going to be looking at her crazy. Now these people are on drugs. Now you got that element involved. And it's like, well, can, you know, can these friends really say that they saw her with him or were they just high and that was another night? Well, and and yeah. you've, got, you've got street people, prostitutes, drug, right. drug people. not coming to testify. Uh, and, and people that are in jail as, as witnesses. It, it's not fair, but they are less credible than somebody wearing a three-piece suit. Right. They are as credible, but society treats them differently. So think about that for a minute. I mean, th- these people on the street, they know what they saw. They are more alert and more attuned mm-hmm. to what's going on around them right. than anybody walking in the courthouse with a three-piece suit. Right. They know. It's part of their survival to know what's going on around them. So they they know what they saw. But when it comes to court time, they're... They're scared. They don't want to go. They're they're afraid that you're going to put me in jail for every time I, you know, and, had a prostitute act, you know, and, in the past. And and they'll do that. They'll do that. We've had, we had a case, that federal case, where this guy had been separated from his family. And he decided that, you know, he had been involved with, the, you know, with our defendant. And he was still on a 50B, like a restraining order hold from his wife and, well, girlfriend and child for this unknown amount of time until pretty much he testified in court for the state on against our defendant. So he was like, if he messed up at, at any point during life, you know, these four, two, three, because it takes them forever to decide what they're going to do. Yeah. You've just unstrung this man out all this time, you know, and then after a while, either he's going to mess up and go back to jail or he's going to be the witness that the state needs him to be so that they can get this other guy, which is really what they want because he's the bigger fish. So, so that was there no information put out by the, the Innocence Commission as to why the case was overturned? Because even to that almost 3,000 number of people requesting their services, it only made it to 16 hearings. Right. So it's not like they're trying every single one of these. Right. I mean, let, all I can requests. think of is a, a great attorney, a good team. And, you know, if, if you're acting as if you did not provide the court with all the evidence or something, you know, they can make a, you know, is that what they judge. said? That's not insufficient counsel, though. No, no. I, that's how it started, right? As That's it, how they broke so. in. Right. But as soon as you get in there and you find something else, you can run with that. Initially, when you read the details, I thought, well, that's weird that there was no blood in the car. Like if they murdered a person and then got in the car and drove away. But then it could have just happened in the reverse order, right? They could have hit her and then drove back and then come back and murdered her. There's that doesn't have it doesn't necessarily mean that no blood in the car means Right. That doesn't mean anything. But you still have the point. You still have the, he has to either confess or you have to find hard evidence that it was this guy. And they. But I, I'll say one thing about the Innocence Commission. Go ahead. If I were innocent and I was in prison, I'd try my best to, to get those people on my case because they have such tenacity they won't stop. Right. They go on and on. Right. And, and on. see, and you got to be, I mean, to get people to overturn a judgment, you have, do you have to do that? How long did they investigate this case? Three three years? I don't know. That's, three years comes to mind, but three years is a long time to reinvestigate something. So they didn't stop. They kept on and on and on and scratching and looking and digging and got where they went. Okay, so 
we've talked about witness witness testimony as evidence, right? We've talked about the forensic evidence. One of the things I thought was kind of interesting was the dog. So <laughs> initially in the beginning of the case, when you're reading, they briefly describe that one of the responding officers brought a bloodhound named Sadie there. And he, he took some gauze and put it onto the victim while she was still laying in place in the road and gave the gauze to the dog. Right. And then, and then they say that the dog then went directly from the gauze and there's no, you know, story in between just from the gauze to the truck and jumped in. And then that's what alerted them to the truck. Right. right? Mm -hmm. So reading way, way past now we're getting to further into about the dog. So during the testimony, Mm -hmm. so they have a Raleigh officer and before the jury, can I just read this part about the dog? Because it's really interesting how they use the dog to link everything together. Can I? Is that okay? All right. So before the jury heard Andy Curran's testimony, and he's an officer, a voir dire. What's that? Voir dire. Voir dire. I've heard uh, that's some court court process. Okay. A voir dire was conducted outside of their presence. The defense attorney brought out that the dog was trained to track scent, but not scent from a dead body. The court made findings of the fact and allowed the jury to hear the testimony. So here we go into this testimony. Andy Curran testified that he was a police officer with the Raleigh Police Department and a trained dog handler. At the time, he was working with two dogs and brought one of them, named Sadie, to the crime scene. Sadie was trained to track scents in schools in Fayetteville and Connecticut. Sadie was trained to track a scent article from a person and follow the trail. Sadie had an over 70% success rate in finding people whose scent she was tracking. At the scene, Andy Curran gathered the victim's scent by laying sterile gauze on the victim's leg. He put the gauze in a plastic bag. He took Sadie 25 feet southeast of the body and put the plastic bag over her nose, giving her the command to find. She worked in a zigzag path, as was her usual way of following a trail, and she went past the vehicle down the embankment. embankment. She wandered in a circle at the bottom of the embankment about 20 or 30 feet past the vehicle and stopped, which indicated she had lost the scent trail. Sadie came back and sat beside Andy Curran, who is which is how she indicates that the scent trail has disappeared. Andy Curran took Sadie back up to the ridge about 30 feet from the vehicle and stuck her nose back in the plastic bag and told her to find again. When she got about 10 to 15 feet from the vehicle, she acted like she picked up the scent again. Sadie, quote, jumped up on the driver's side of the door of the vehicle and went around the back and jumped up on the passenger side of the vehicle too. She then worked a circle around the vehicle and came back and sat down by Andy Curran. Andy Curran testified that this behavior indicated that the scent from the gauze was somewhere on the vehicle. And it goes on a little bit more, but I I think Mm. that that's kind of interesting, right? So is it on it or is it in it? What the, what is what on it? The scent. I think it was on it. Perhaps both. Mm -hmm. Well, maybe on the guys who were in the car. Maybe they got the guys sent off her. Right. You don't know what she's smelling, do you? You don't know. She's tracking somebody. Right. She's, is she tracking the victim or the suspect? Yeah. Well, she's tracking the smell from gauze on the victim, right? So either way, it places the victim with the vehicle. Yeah, but people tear it. They just tear that stuff up in court. Okay, so hold on. So are we done about the dog? Can we be we done can about be. the dog? Yeah. Yeah, because we, we're running out of time, unfortunately. Oh, That's okay. But I, w- I want him to tell us one quick story. What's that? The 45-minute testimony. But let's not make it 45 minutes because Joe's going to shoot me. So we have real evidence, which is what we've been talking about today, like blood and semen and tracks and fingerprints and all this stuff. And then you have testimony evidence. 
right? And so Mally has this awesome story, and I'm excited to tell us about he had to do a testimony for 45 minutes. We had a homicide here in Raleigh. We located the suspect, arrested the suspect. My partner and I was, uh, we had worked for several days and nights without much sleep. One evening, uh, 6 p.m. or so, we had gone home. We got a call. Me and my partner got a call. This person had been arrested. There was a warrant issued. He had been arrested and picked up. They brought him to our office. He and I came down, and we questioned him. He confessed to the murder. The one I was speaking about, it was three people involved with the beer can behind the convenience store. Mm-hmm. So he confessed to the murder, and we've got everything we need. So it's like 1 o'clock. We're tired. We're going home. And the dude, we're getting ready to go. He said, well, let me tell you about the other one. The other what? Murder? The other murder? The other murder. Yes. We didn't know about the other murder. What he had done, he and his partners had uh, carjacked someone at a shopping center about a week earlier, Mm -hmm. put the guy in his trunk, drove him around, did the homicide at the convenience store we're talking about. Didn't know what to do with the guy in the truck, in the trunk. So they took him out to a field. Shot him in the back of the head with a shotgun. Dumped the car in a in a in a in a huge ditch, ravine kind of thing, off okay. off a road. Mm-hmm. And uh, they went about their business. They went to a hotel, walked to a hotel, hid the shotgun under the stairwell on the first floor. Wow, bad place to hide a gun. That's a terrible I hiding spot. I can see it. Yeah. <laughs> so we identified a fingerprint. We got. We went and found this guy. We talked to him. He confessed to everything. So we found the guy's car who had been carjacked. Uh They tried to show us where his body was all night, and it was cold. Uh It was cold. Ice on the ground. It was cold. We had to go to the jail, get a second suspect out to come and show us where the (laughs) body was. Uh, they were just driving around aimlessly to where where to s- dispose of somebody. So anyway, so we found the we found the field, we found the body. Mm-hmm. They pled guilty, so everything went pretty good. Probably a seven eight, and and they're all serving time. They've been convicted and gone. Seven eight years later, the, the shooter in this case, he killed someone in prison, Halifax County. Mm-hmm. So now they, they've got him on trial for murder in Halifax County. So as, as part of the evidence of him being a bad guy, me and my partner went to Halifax County to testify of this guy's past and his history and mm-hmm. what kind of a person he was. Halifax County is kind of rural. Mm-hmm. Did they reach out to you to have you go there to testify? Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. They did. They wanted to, they wanted to present this evidence yeah in part of the sentencing hearing so the district attorney told the jury what we were there for and he asked me to take the stand and i did and he asked me to describe what happened and of course when you're when you're addressing the court you're you're addressing the jury primarily they're the people you want to talk to Mm -hmm. so i turned sideways a little bit (laughs) and i looked each and every one of them in the eyes as as i testified 45 minutes, you could have heard a pin drop. Those people, good people, farmers, housewives, uh, husbands and whatnot, they had never been involved in a 
murder court trial. case, murder case, a, a bad person that had, you know, he's killed several people, killed at least three. Right. And and, and I'm testifying, 45 minutes, you can hear a pin drop. Bam. And they convicted him. Again. Again. And yeah. he's done. There's, I mean, well, he was probably done before, but he's probably got like a hundred plus years or something. I think so. Yeah, I thought that was cool. I'd be nervous. Were you nervous? No. No. Yeah. You know, you know what you know. Right. Nobody else knows what you know. As long as you you have written your report and your notes, and you know that, so right. You know, all you got to do is speak tell the it, truth. Tell it like it was. Tell it like it. Yeah. Tell the truth about it, and you go, and they ask you a question or whatnot, and and. You know, it's there. It's written. And you can take your papers up there with you. You can. Right. So you're, Who you're was asking, was anybody asking you questions? District Attorney says, tell us about your investigation on Mr. So-and-so. That's all he said? That's all he said. <laughs> and take, let, let you take the floor. And then it began. It did. It and was a cold out. day. Yeah, it was a cold It was day. ice. It was cold. <laughs> it was cold. It was icy cold. <laughs> it was a Tuesday. <laughs> Thank you, Mally. My pleasure. Did you enjoy it? So far. Good. Yeah. Well, it's over. So that's it. <laughs> I think you should come back for more. Do you? Yes. I think we should have him and Allison together at some point. Yes. I think that would be excellent. It might be a long so, one. It might be a long <laughs> one. That's okay. We can work on that. I've got some, got a lot of stories. Yeah. Right. I like hearing the old stories. They're just, and you have a way of telling them too. Yes. I don't mean old stories like that. I'm sorry. I just said. Well, they just, are old stories. They are. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was a while ago. 30, 40 years ago. Yeah. They are. And, well, we won't get into it. Maybe next time if I come back. Well, thank you. I will, feel like you could have your own podcast of your stories. He will be back. All right. Thank you, beautiful people out there, for listening to the Sleuth Podcast. Follow us on all the social medias, Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn. We're looking for us a LinkedIn page. So connect with us, attorneys, if you're listening out there, and just regular people. Yes, ma'am. We haven't talked about that. We made Chartable's Top 200 that one week. Oh, whoop, whoop, tell it. So one week we got it. This was during quarantine, which was really cool because, you know, my idea was kind of that there was no podcasting listening going on, you know, and we really weren't putting out a whole lot of new episodes. And then all these smiley faces and stuff on an email come in from Joe and, you know, confetti's <laughs> going. And he said, you're in Chartable's top 200. And I was like, cool. What's that? So I look it up and I guess they, they rate you based on your listenership per episode count. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, that's really cool. That's really cool because we only have like, we have 25, 24 episodes. 24, yep. Today makes 24. To be in a top 200 is actually really cool. And that's of all podcasts. Also, they categorized us both as a comedy and a true crime. (laughs) So it's official, chartable. And so, and I guess we had different scores both underneath the the comedy side and the true crime side. Yeah, and true crime, you were 122 and comedy, you were 386. We're so funny. Uh, I just, I love, I love that so much. I do too. In Canada, you were 3,419. So So they don't think we're funny? Because we're not big in Canada. Oh. Well, they need to get with it. You come down here and say that to my face. (laughs) No, no. No, no. Six feet, please. All right. Thank you guys for listening. We will see you next time. We're out. Blackman Detective Services. Check out our website at blackmanpi.com and follow us on Facebook. We don't sleuth shame. Subscribe to The Sleuth on your favorite podcast app if you really want to know.